Well, we are at the end of 1 Peter, uh, the end of the letter that Peter wrote to the, to the churches in Asia Minor. We've been working through this sort of verse by verse, section by section. Uh, there are a few things that I know about endings, and most of them were taught to me by one of my most favorite teachers, Mr. Hunnings at Millard Junior Secondary. Way back in the day, I had him as an English teacher from grades 8 through 10. And he said a few things, important things about endings. He said, of course, endings are very important. He said, you should always, uh, whether you're writing, whether you're speaking, save your strongest point for the end, because that's what people tend to remember. He said also that uh, you should make sure you repeat your main point at the end, because your goal by the end of your, whatever you're writing or saying is that your audience or your reader will go away with a crystal clear picture of what you think is the most important thing. And that is what we find here in 1 Peter. That right here at the end, he re-emphasizes the things that he has been saying all along. Remember, his, his goal in writing this letter was to encourage the churches of Asia Minor at the time, and really the church through, for all time, including us. He wanted to equip us so that we would remain firm in our faith in the midst of the trials and the sufferings of this world. So just to remind us of kind of how we began... Let's, let's look at uh, the first few verses of, of 1 Peter. So after his greeting, he writes this. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So you see there very clearly, Peter's saying to the church, to us, look, there, are, there will be trials, there will be suffering, but you still have reason for hope. And that hope is rooted in the power and the love of God. That's what he's been developing, those themes throughout the entire letter. And now here at the end, he comes back to reemphasize them once again. So we're going to read the last major section of the letter, and then we're going to see what God has for us this morning. Here is now First Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 6. <clears throat> he writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's a great ending. And you can see in there that there's, there's a lot in there for us as a church. I mean, fantastic, life-giving, faith-building exhortations that we can really grab hold of in terms of acquiring hope for our lives today. But there's one thing in here that I think is key. One thing that is, is brief. It's a short few words. We could go past it quickly, but I really think it holds everything together. And that is the end of verse 7, in which in which Peter writes, and he says simply, he cares for you. God cares for you. 
as I was preparing this week, I mean, my, my habit, my custom is to, is to be in prayer, of course, right? Praying as I study, praying as I outline, praying as I, as I write. And increasingly, as I was kind of working my way through the, the week, I felt a conviction that this, this is the thing that we need to focus on, that this is what God has for us this morning as a church, that God cares for us. So we're going to focus on this, not, not to the exclusion of the rest of the text, but so that we can rightly understand and effectively apply the rest of the passage to our lives. So we're going to do a deep dive into this, these few words, God cares for us. We're going to spend most of the sermon there. Then we're going to come up for air and look at the rest of the passage in light, in light of this truth. So if you're taking, point, uh, taking you know, notes, there's one point today, just one, which is this, God cares for us. God cares for us. There is nothing more foundational to the Christian faith than this. God exists is, is more basic, but in terms of understanding what God is like and how he feels about us, this is it. God cares for us. That's, that's the gospel in a nutshell. That's the heart of God in a nutshell, that God loves us. You see it over and over again, hundreds of verses in the Bible about God loving us, God caring for us, God providing for us, God in- intervening. We, we see it through the pages of Scripture. and We see it in the most famous verse of the Bible. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If there's anything that God seems to want us to know about him and how he feels about us, it's this, that he cares for us, that he loves us. But what exactly does that mean? When Peter writes that, he cares for us. What is... What does he have in mind? Well, of course, you could write volumes about the love of God, but really what it means is the same thing that it means when we talk about loving each other as, as human beings. I mean, when someone pursues us relationally and affectionately, is interested in us, that feels loving. That they, they want to know more about us. When someone walks with us through hard times, we say that's love. Right? They're willing to, to go with us through the, the difficult times. They're not turning away. When someone does what they can to help us, even at great personal cost, we know that's love. That they're really willing to expend energy and effort, whatever it takes, to care for us. We, we feel loved, and that is how God loves us. And he doesn't just say that he loves us. He showed us that he loves us. We see this in 1 John 3.16, in which John says simply, By this we know love that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us. That's what we see at the cross. The cross was this grisly, horrific instrument of torture in the ancient world, and yet Jesus transformed it into the most beautiful beacon of sacrificial love that the world has ever known. He laid down his life for us because he cared for us, because he he loves us. He paid the, the greatest cost to show us the depth of his love. And so if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, that is what you believe. That is what you would affirm. That is what you you know to be true about God. This is the very heart of the Christian faith, that Jesus died for us because God loves us. But here's the thing about God's love. God doesn't just want to show us his love in the pages of the Bible, though it's there on every page. 
He doesn't just want to show us his love in the, in the records of history, though it's there as well. He wants us to experience his love today, in, in every moment of our lives, in real time. He wants us to know with every fiber of our being that he really does care for us. And I think this is the challenge for us as people of faith. As Christians, we would say, we, would, we believe that God loves us, but I think many of us would say that we struggle to actually experience that love, like to feel it on an emotional and, and practical level. So let's ask a few questions about this, the nature of God's love. Here's the first one. Why do we struggle to experience God's love? If it's affirmed so much in, in the Bible and we, we believe it in a sense, why do we struggle to experience God's love? Now, you might say that that is a dumb question because the answer is, is pretty obvious. We struggle to experience God's love because of the life that God gives us. Many would say, look, there's this glaringly obvious disconnect between the professions of love we see from God in the Bible, the demonstrations of love we see from God in the past, and what's actually going on in our lives right now. And so we struggle. I received an email uh, a few weeks ago from, from a man that our family had gotten to know through soccer kind of a couple of years ago. We hadn't heard from him in a, in a long time. He reached out just to see how we were doing, and I got into a bit of an email exchange asking for updates on his life, asking if I could, I could pray for him in light of some of the struggles he was going through. And we started talking a bit about faith, and so I kind of asked him, you know, are, do, you, do you have faith? And here was his response. He said, I was raised in the Christian faith but I'm not a man of faith today because of the many things that happened in my life and because nothing seemed to help. By which I, I took to mean that he had been raised to, to, to know and believe in God, to believe that God loved him, that he should turn to God, he should pray and ask for help. And yet as things began to happen, difficult things in his life, and he was praying about them, nothing got better and nothing seemed to help. And so for him, he came to the conclusion, what, what is the point? What is the point of this faith? What is the point of trusting in this loving God if when I'm talking to him, nothing actually gets better in my life? And I think that really is the main problem for us. Lead some people to abandon faith altogether, but for others of us, we remain in the faith in a sense, still, still professing to be Christians, but we stop believing that God's love is anything beyond like a theological distant truth. Like we, we know that it's true out there somewhere, but not, not actually true for us. You don't expect the kind of loving care from God that you would from, from a good friend. And so to compensate for this disconnect, we, we treat God the way that we would treat the people in our lives that disappoint us, which is that we, we kind of build up a wall. Right? Like a, a relational, emotional wall, just to kind of keep ourselves distant, protected, because we don't want to be disappointed. We don't want to, we don't want to hope in someone who's not, not going to come through. And so it limits the connection, but it keeps us from getting hurt. And I think a lot of times this happens without us even realizing it. Like it happens slowly over the years. There's this subconscious kind of shift in our disposition towards God. And, and we may not even realize the extent to which we have, we have come to really doubt the love of God in a practical, tangible way in our lives. 
So let me ask this question. What are the, what are the signs that we actually doubt God's love? What are, what are the signs that we, we actually doubt the love of God, that we don't really believe that he's going to love us and care for us? And so I'm going to give you a list of things that I think would show up in our lives if we have this, this in our heart, this, this doubt in our heart, and this list uh, is going to tie into our passage in a bit. So here's some of the things I think we would see. The first is pride. Now, pride is, is frankly difficult to see in ourselves because it kind of naturally blinds us to whatever's going on. But I think if there is a, a general sense of dissatisfaction in our, with our lives, then pride is at work. Like we have a, if we have a sense that we're complaining about our life, then basically what we're saying is, look, God, I, I know you, you love me in some way, but I don't really think you're doing a great job of my life right now. Like, I know, Jesus, you died for me, but today, t- tomorrow, I don't have a real sense of confidence that you're going to do anything good. And so because of that, we, we tend to try to keep control in our life as much as we can because we don't really think God can be trusted. Right? We, we, want our, we want our hands on the wheel rather than the hands hands of God, and so there's a sense of pride that we know better than God. And this leads to anxiety. That's the second thing, anxiety. Because once pride takes root, uh, anxiety follows. Because even though we think that it's better if we are in control, we you know, have our hands on the wheel of the, all the things in our life, the reality is that there's so many things in our lives that are too big for us to control. Like they're outside of our control. And so we spend a lot of our time with our stomachs kind of churning, with our minds racing, trying to figure out how we're going to control things, make things better, and yet it, it never seems to work. And so we always feel overburdened. We feel anxious, feel worried. These are things that rightly belong in the hands of God, but we, we don't really trust his hands. And so we want to we keep them to ourselves. The other thing that comes up is, is instability, is the way I would say it, I think. And by that, I mean an instability in our faith. Like when we doubt the love of God, then we don't really have anything outside of ourselves to bring a sense of stability and strength. I mean, again, we, we would probably affirm, look, I know that God is real. I know that he's powerful. But that power always seems so far away from us. It doesn't seem to actually help, help us. And so because of that, we tend to feel vulnerable. When we're, when we're tempted, when we're attacked, we always find ourselves giving in to sin or compromising on our, on our convictions and feeling like we can't get our footing and so we question our faith and we just never feel a real sense of, of solidity or firmness in the things that we believe because we don't really think that God is with us and for us and, and so we doubt a lot of the time. The other thing that happens to us when we doubt that God cares for us is we feel isolated. There's a sense of isolation that comes up, which is not surprising. If we don't believe that God cares for us, it's, it's hard to think that other people will really care for us. In fact, because of the other things, the beginning part of the list, the pride, the anxiety, a lot of the times we tend to feel like, you know what, I don't really think that people are going to get me. Like, I, I don't know that I can really trust anyone and be open with anyone because I don't think they're really going to understand what I'm going through. I mean, how could anyone else understand me if God isn't really caring for me? And so we, we sort of keep things to ourselves. The other thing that we th- tend to think is even if I did open up, like if I were to share and ask for help, someone, they're probably just going to tell me things that I already know that aren't working. Like, God loves you. Like, trust in him. Like, it's going to get better. 
And we think to ourselves, it's, it's not getting better. I don't want to hear that. And so we, we tend to, to struggle with all this on our own and not really reach out for help. And so we're isolated. And this leads ultimately to a sense of despair, a sense of hopelessness, right? It's tough to have hope if you don't really believe that God is, is for you in a real tangible way. I mean, the world, the world is chaotic, the world is hurtful. And if the only being that actually can do anything about all these things seems deaf to our cries for help, then, then what hope do we have? I mean, we, we hope in heaven, right? Yeah, that's going to be great, but that's like a long way off. We need hope like right now and for tomorrow. And when we doubt the, the practical love and care of God, we, it's really hard for us to believe that things actually will get better or that there's, there's good for us tomorrow or the day after. Now, this is a pretty horrible list. Put the list uh, back up for a moment. Uh, this is not a great list. I mean, if you look at those things, and if, if you knew that, like if you saw evidence of those things in your life, I mean, wouldn't, we would notice it, wouldn't we? Like if we're believers, and we were prideful, anxious, unstable, isolated, I mean, wouldn't we, wouldn't we think to ourselves, man, there must be something missing. I shouldn't have these things as part of my life. But here's the thing. I think it's very possible for us as Christians to have these things as part of our lives and not even really notice it because it just feels natural. It just feels like that is the struggle. Life is a struggle. We know that. We saw it in 1 Peter. So that means that I'm just going to struggle with anxiety, with isolation. This is just how you deal with it. It's a natural outflow of the hard things that God has given us is for just for us to be doubtful people. But let me ask you a question about that. Let me take a step back and ask you a question just about that dynamic of us doubting the love of God in light of the difficulties in our lives. Could it be that we are judging our life by the wrong measure of love? Like, could it be that we don't understand what God's love actually looks like in our life? Like, the, the good, the deeper good that he's actually doing? And I ask this question because this is a problem for the people of God actually recognize what it looks like to be loved and cared for by God in the best possible way, not just in the way that we, we want to be loved. So let me give you an example. This is, this is an example of people who knew Jesus like, like personally, like talked with him. Okay? This is, this is the, the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Now in that story, uh, Lazarus, if you remember, he was a close personal friend of Jesus. And his sisters, Mary and Martha, close personal friends of Jesus. They had him over for dinner. He knew him very, very well. So Lazarus, when he gets sick, Mary and Martha send to Jesus. Jesus is like a town away. They send a messenger to tell him, hey, Lazarus is sick. Because that's one of the perks of knowing the Son of God personally. You can send someone and be like, you can heal people. Lazarus, remember Lazarus you love? He's, he's really sick. But the weird thing, the tough thing about the story is Jesus doesn't respond as a loving friend should respond, what they would think would be normal because he doesn't, he doesn't rush over to Lazarus to help him. In fact, it's really clear in the text, he waits. Like he delays his leaving. He takes his time. And by the time he does go and see Lazarus and Mary and Martha, Lazarus is dead. He waited too long. 
And so when he comes to see them, you, you can tell there's this underlying tension for Mary and Martha of like, we still believe that you're the Messiah, but, but like, why weren't you here? Like, you can feel this tension. Look at, here's John 11. Here's when he comes, finally. Look at verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Which totally makes sense for us, right? Jesus where were you? Like, like, I still believe you're Lord and you have the power to heal, but like, why weren't you here? It doesn't seem very loving. But look at the next thing that happens. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid them? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then it says, Jesus wept. Now that does seem like the response of a loving friend. That does, I mean, that's what loving friends do. When there's mourning, when there's weeping, we, we are affected. We're brokenhearted because they're brokenhearted. And in the next verse, there's this fascinating response. People are watching this happen, looking at Jesus, talking to Mary, and, and look at the two responses that they make. Here's verse 36. So the Jews said about Jesus, see how he loved him. But then some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? You see the two responses. Some people look at the situation and say, man, Jesus must have really loved Lazarus. Look, he's weeping. He's, he's crying with them. He's mourning with them. He must have loved them. But someone else says, well, if he really loved him, wouldn't he have done something? Like, it's great that he's responding emotionally, but why didn't he do anything? I mean, isn't, isn't that tension within us all the time as people of faith? If you're, if you're a Christian, I, I, I know you love me, but why aren't you... Aren't you doing anything? Like, if you really love me and you have the power to help me, then why wouldn't you do something? That's what they were saying. The crowd was saying if he loved him and he had all this power, why didn't he do something? But of course, Jesus was doing something. And he wasn't just doing something. He was doing the best thing. He was doing the absolutely most loving thing that he could possibly do. See, here's, here's the disconnect. Here's the misunderstanding from the people at the time. They thought that physical healing would be the greatest expression of love and practical care that Jesus could show. I mean, what could be greater? He has the power of God. He loves Lazarus. He would go as quick as he could and heal him. That would show his love. But that's because they couldn't conceive of the dead rising from the grave. They had, they had no conception that he had that kind of power. And that was the whole point of what Jesus was doing. The whole reason that he delayed his coming so that they would experience a greater demonstration of his love. When Jesus finally got to the tomb, told him to roll away the stone and said, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus stood up after being dead for four days and came out. Everyone's mind was blown. And, and here's, here's what the big deal was. It wasn't just that all of a sudden they realized that resurrection was possible. They already believed that. If you read the story, Mary, she understood, yeah, God will raise us from the dead. I know that's, that is a, that's a hope that we have. That wasn't the big deal. The big deal was that Jesus was saying, I am the origin of this power. I am the origin of this love. The greatest expression of love would be for people to know me as God, to know my power, to know my glory. See, here's the thing. I think most of us, think that the most loving thing that God could do in our lives would be to make it easier. But that's not the most loving thing he could do. 
the most loving thing is not that God would just say yes to all our prayers. Yes, heal me. Yes, help my finances. Yes, help my family. Yes, yes, yes. We think, of course, what could be more loving than that? It would, everything, all the struggles would be gone. But here's the thing. In this world, a life of ease does not lead to a greater understanding of Christ. In fact, a life of ease means that over time, we don't really see the need for God anymore. And so our faith weakens. And so we're unprepared for, for eternity. And so when things do fall apart, we have, we have no stability. The most loving thing that God can do for us is to reveal himself to us more and more. And that happens best through the trials of life, through the challenges of life. Because it's in those moments when we're on our knees, when things are falling apart, where we, we realize we really do need the Lord. We don't have the strength in ourselves. The things of this world aren't going to cut it. And that is the pattern of God loving his people throughout all time, the early church to now. In fact, look, here's an example. It's a really clear example of how this dynamic works. This is the Apostle Paul speaking about his missionary journeys and all the suffering that he experienced. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. This is Paul saying we were really suffering. We were really on the board of hopelessness. Why? Why did that happen? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That was the point. That God was allowing them to be overwhelmed so they would see their need for him. Rely on him all the more. Draw nearer to him all the more. God uses the trials to reveal himself to us more fully. There's this mistake that we make in the church in thinking that God is not going to overwhelm us or allow too many things to overwhelm us and that if we're in a position where we feel overwhelmed, something must be wrong, must be outside the will of God. None of that is true. God overwhelms us all the time so that we might grab onto him for strength and him for help so that we might see maybe for the first time the beauty of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, to help whatever it might be. That is the most loving thing that he can do and he does it all the time. And the amazing thing is that as we are struggling through this, even when we're making steps of faithlessness or sin or whatever it may be and we're, we're reaping the consequences of that, he's with us. He's with us, weeping with us, mourning with us, inviting us, drawing us nearer to himself. God cares for us. He loves us. He always has and he always will. And once that is settled in our hearts, everything changes. And here's what I mean by that. I don't mean that the circumstances of our lives change. I mean that we see everything differently. We see everything in light of the love and care of God. And so I have a list of what that looks like, of the changes that come when we trust that God actually cares for us. That's the, that's the last question. What changes in our lives when we trust that God actually cares for us? And as we go through this list, you're going to see it's the opposite of the first list. And it's all found in our text of what Peter's writing about. So the first thing is this. When you really trust that God cares for you, there's a humility that grows naturally. Look at verse 6. Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. 
when we believe that God cares for us, our response is, yes, Lord, I, I willingly let go of the reins of my life. I trust that your way is best. I, I don't feel the need to try to control every little thing because I know you are going to do what is best for me. And so I humble myself before you. I submit to your plan for my life, gladly, willingly, joyfully. There's a humility of heart because you trust. You trust that God is doing good even though it's through difficulty, even though it's through sorrows. So there's a humility that grows. The second thing that grows is, is a peacefulness, a peace. Look at verse seven. He says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Yes, Lord, I gladly let go of the things I can't control because I know that your, your hands are good hands. You're gonna care for me well. You're gonna care for them well. And so the anxiety that I have, I can, I can cast it upon you, meaning that I, I pray about it and then I actively try to, to not think about it all the time and try to piece things together and try to forecast all the things in the future which I can't see anyway. I just trust and find peace in your presence, in your leading, in your will. It's a joyful thing to really know that God is for you and a peaceful thing. The next thing that comes is strength. Look at verse 8. Peter writes, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. For those of us who know that God cares for us and that he loves us, there's a strength that comes. That The devil wants to destroy our faith. We see it all through the pages of Scripture, through the pages of history, that he wants to undermine the faith of the church, and so he's going to do everything that he can to bring us to the point of, of, of floundering. And yet here we see that we can, we can stand firm. We can resist him. Why? Because Jesus already defeated the devil on the cross and because he promises to be with us. And so even when we're, when we're in that battle with our own sin, even when we're in the midst of persecution, whatever it is, we can stand firm, knowing that our feet are planted by the power of God. And that we can respond in faithfulness by his strength, not by our own. The next thing that comes is community. He says, uh, resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is part of what the church is for. That we're here as the community of faith so that we can encourage each other. We We can come to the realization that everyone around us is struggling in some way. That we are not unique in that way. I mean, all through the world, there's, there's suffering in this way. And the point of the church, in part, is that we, we actually enter into each other's suffering. That we, that we share what's going on. We pray for each other. I mean, this, this is the, the joy of our community group that we have in our home every week. At the end of our time, we, we split up uh, guys and girls, and we get around a table, meet five other guys, and we, we, we pray for each other. And some of the prayers are superficial things, Right? I'm having gallbladder surgery. Please pray I don't die. Yes, we'll pray for that. Absolutely. But also, look, here are the things I'm really struggling with. I'm anxious about. I'm fearful about. Here's where I think that I am struggling with pride. Could you pray for me? What a, what a wonderful thing it is to know that there's other people who are struggling, like you're struggling, and also to be able to lean on each other for strength. This is the way it's supposed to work, that, that we can draw help from the church. The next thing we see is is hope, that we will grow in hope. And verse 10 is a very hopeful verse. Peter writes, And after you have suffered for a little while, 
like maybe your whole life, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's the sequence. That's the way it works. Now, for a little while, there will be struggles, there will be trials. We're in a world that's been wrecked by sin. That's what Peter's writing, or his whole letter is, look, there's going to be difficult times. There's going to be persecution. But we're looking forward to a hope, a great hope. Look at the words he uses. That God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But the wonderful thing is that that's not just way in the future. It's not just a heavenly hope. It is that. But that begins now. All of those things, he's beginning to work in us now because he's called us now. He's called us to faith. He's called us to, to enjoy him, to, be, to enjoy the faithfulness, the, the forgiveness that comes from knowing him, all of the, the restoration, the confirmation. These things are beginning in us by his power and will continue to grow to the point where we step into the, into the glories of heaven. And the last thing, which wasn't on the first list, is that all of this leads to worship. To worship. Verse 11, Peter simply writes, To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's saying, God, have dominion over my life. You are sovereign. You are in charge, Lord. Amen. Now, you might say, in light of, in light of reading this and seeing these things and seeing the connection to, to the love of God, you, you might say to yourself, man, I, I really, I want that. I want more of that in my life, but I'm not sure how to get it, frankly. I mean, that first list that, that seems to just naturally well up in me. And the anxiety, right? The, the, the pride, the sense of isolation, all of the, all of the struggles, it naturally leads to those places. But I'm not sure how to get to this, this humility and peace. I mean, it seems so hard. How do, how do I do that? Here's the good news. We don't, we don't need to know how to do that. That list, that second list, all those things, those aren't prerequisites to then accessing the love of God. Simply knowing the love of God is the first step. And then it says, the God of all grace. All grace means every good thing is from him. He will bless us with that. Even the turning to him is, is his work in us. And he will restore us. He will encourage us. He will convict us at times. And he will grow us in our understanding of his love. And all those other things flow from that. So, if you are struggling in this way, and I would say we all are to some degree, the, the right response is not just to buckle down and be like, I gotta be more humble. I gotta talk to more people. I gotta do all these things. No, it's, it's simply to humble ourselves in prayer. Just ask. Admit, Lord, man, there's areas in my life, it's hard for me to trust you. I know that I should, but it's, I'm not used to it. Help me, Lord. Lord, I, I doubt your love. I do. I don't really believe that you're gonna do good for me tomorrow. I need your help, Lord. Admit your desire to be in control. And then you, you trust in his forgiving love. You trust that simply by turning to him, you will experience him more fully. And I would say to you, if you're, if you're feeling any of this, if you're feeling a sense of conviction about certain things, if you're feeling a sense of, of desire to better grasp this love, then can I just encourage you not to just pass it by? Like not simply to, to say that's yeah, something that I want to work on in the future, but to right now. I mean, we're going to respond in a moment. We're going to be singing together, worshiping together. It'd be a great time to simply 
pause in prayer, to turn to the Lord in prayer. Ask for the Spirit of God to fill you, to minister to you, to forgive you. If there's sin, needs to be forgiven and to grow in this, to move in your heart. And then do that all the time. I would even encourage you, if you'd like, I'll be at the back uh, while we're singing. If you want to come for prayer, I'll be there. Some other people from on staff, other leaders, we'd love to just pray with you to encourage each other in this. So here's how we're going to end. We're going to end by reading Peter's closing. Last bit of the letter. Verse 12. He says this, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She was at Babylon, that is Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all you who are in Christ. And there is peace for us because of what Christ has done and because he is at work in us even now. So let me pray for us that we would grow in that peace and that love. Lord Jesus, I do pray for us. Lord, I I confess that I struggle with this. Lord, it's so easy to misunderstand and disbelieve that you're, you're for us and that you love us when there's so much hard things going on in our lives. And there's so many things that we, we think we could fix in a moment if you would just give us the power, Lord. And so there's a struggle within our own hearts. And I pray, Lord, I pray for your help. I pray for your humbling, Lord, in our own hearts, that we would trust that your way is best. I do pray, Lord, for those difficulties that we are experiencing. You tell us to come to you in prayer. And so I pray, Lord, for the circumstances of our lives that are bringing us to the point of despair. God, would you please move in them and, and, and help us in them. Make those circumstances better, but Lord, not if it means that we're gonna love you less. That's what we yearn for, Lord. Help us to see the value of that, that we would grow in our love for you, our worship of you, and our trusting in you, draw near to you in these difficult times. I pray also, Lord, for your help to be faithful as we walk forward. Lord, not to ignore the help that others give, and not to ignore the leading of your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that through this, you would grow us as a church for your glory and for our good, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.